1: there's a question, especially since there is going to be some sort of recovery, the virus will end. Where do you find value? How do you find a compass in an unprecedented period of time? Joining us now, Carl Weinberg, founder and chief international economist at High Frequency Economics in New York. And based on your decades of experience, including uh, the restructuring of Latin American crisis back in the 80s, I'm wondering, what are you looking for to determine the floor here and get us Sense of, of it's time to buy.
2: Hi, good morning. Well, you know time to buy is is more complicated than just economics. I'm focused on the where the economy is going to be and how we're going to get through this this bump. In my experience, the difference between a downturn and a crisis is whether or not things break. And the question is whether this break in income is going to be severe enough to cause institutions, companies to fail and uh, get us to a point where when we come back, were not as strong as we were as when we went into all of this.
0: So, Carl, what are some of the type of uh, data that you're going to be looking at going forward to get a sense of whether this is you know, a little bit more of a short-term issue once we get to the other side of the virus, or perhaps something more fundamental to the global economy?
2: Well, here's what we're going to be discussing in our, our global webinar at High Frequency Economics later this week on Thursday morning, I believe. Uh, I'm looking at the data from China, and I'm looking at January-February figures, and I'm seeing 20%-plus down on retail sales year over year. For the January and February numbers, I've seen 13.5% down year over year on industrial production. And I'm wondering, could that happen here with our lockdown? You know, They lock down, we're locking down, why wouldn't we get the same result? And if we got that, I'm trying to guesstimate, because I've never seen anything like this before, what the impact of two or three months at that level of depressed activity would mean for the solvency of small and medium enterprises, And for that matter, for the solvency of big enterprises and the banks that service them. This is the kind the scale of the question that I'm thinking about. And it's framed very much by the data from China. Auto production in China, by the way, dropped almost 80 percent year over year in February. These are enormous numbers. And again, one has to ask if it happened there, why wouldn't similar declines happen here? And what would the consequences be?
1: So have you started to model that out?
2: I've started to think it out. I can't really model it, Lisa, because I don't have any historical data to hold it up against. So we're really in the realm of guesstimates, and that puts economics in the same place as where the medicine is. We're looking at potentially an unprecedented shock. I'll call it a supply shock right? that reduces our capacity to work. It reduces the number of people who can get to their jobs, and that means we can produce less stuff. And along that, uh, sliding that supply curve to the left, we end up with shortages of stuff, higher prices, a stagflation scenario with dramatically lower output. And frankly, Lisa, I'm just beginning to think about how to think about it.
0: So, Carl, we've seen the uh, Federal Reserve come in aggressively over the weekend last night uh, with uh, lower rates and, and some QE. What do you think is that – do you think that what this economy really needs is a comprehensive fiscal package coming out of Washington?
2: Um, we need a package coming out of Washington, but I don't think we need traditional fiscal stimulus. Right? What we need is we need to keep our our financial system sound and safe, and I give the Fed and all the central banks of the world, except maybe for the Bank of Japan, high marks for ensuring that banks remain liquid, that they push credit – To people and companies so that they can use it. That the only way to survive this kind of a shock is to introduce enough financing and credit into the economy so that we can spread the pain over an affordable and a survivable period of time. So what we need are programs to ensure that banks, whether they want to or not, pump credit out to companies that are suffering cash shortfalls in households, make it a credit not a transfer, and then use that uh, that space of time that the credit allows to recover from what appears to be a much bigger shock than anyone had been thinking about until recently.
1: So you said that, you, that traditional uh, fiscal stimulus would not be necessarily what was required, and yet you have a growing amount of uh, speculation that anything from helicopter money to bailing out entire industries would be uh, a productive, and not only productive, but crucial part of our recovery. I'm just going to throw this out out there, AQR Capital Management's Cliff Asness, who is a uh, self-described libertarian at times, said today on Twitter, I am not a libertarian about coronavirus and saying we need, and I don't think I've ever said this before, fiscal help. We need fiscal relief for individuals and in small and maybe large businesses. The Fed action was fine and those who dismiss it are wrong. We should use all possible tools. Do you agree?
2: Um, um, sort of, but not entirely. You know, if this is a supply shock, all right? It means we're making less stuff. So if we give people money in their pockets to replace the money they're not earning, all right, to make the stuff that's not being produced, we're going to have more money than goods and we're going to create an inflation. Shifting the demand curve to the right, I think, is the wrong policy. All right, we need to get that supply curve moving back to the left, and we need to cushion what is an inevitable decline in income and loss of income and loss of wealth coming out of this. And that's where we have to start being realistic, that if we keep people away from work for weeks or months, we're going to be poorer as a result of that. And the challenge is not to replace the income that's lost. You can't. The challenge is to bridge the adjustment to that lower level of income and lower level of wealth so that it's survivable. So I think that fiscal policy, credit is the right tool to do that, and the government's role in all of this is to ensure that banks make loans to people that they normally wouldn't make. All right? If you go to the bank and you say, I'm short of cash, I need a loan, you're not going to get it. All right, Then the banks have to be prepared to make these kinds of bridging loans, I'll call them, so that people can get the credit they need to survive the next six months so that when the virus goes away, businesses are still in business and households haven't lost their homes and their life savings and all of that. So we need to bridge through this trauma and then recover over time from it.
0: Carl Weinberg, thanks very much for joining us. We appreciate your thoughts, as always. Uh, interesting to put in context, I guess it's question, Lisa, just kind of how long uh, this um the medical aspect of this is the last, is it a month? Is it two months? Uh, obviously, the longer you go, uh, Lisa, the more profound the economic impact will be. And then that raises the question of what type of rebound will we have on the way back out?
1: Yeah, it's going to be a really tricky situation, people talking about $500 billion, $600 billion type of uh, fiscal stimulus. There's also a question of timing. How quickly uh, can they end up getting it, given the fact that this seems to be imminent? There's more of a concern that there's going to be actually a a failure of some companies to be able to make their bills in near-term. Why even the big behemoths like Apple and Facebook are just getting hammered when a lot of people view them as likely to be, uh, you know, absolutely withstand this and then continue to gain on the other side? David Garrity has been tracking this, uh, chief market strategist for Laidlaw and Company and partner at BT Block. I'd love to get your sense. of of Big Tech's involvement in Washington, D.C. stories about how they're trying to uh, help basically assess testing, trying to figure out ways to do it so that people don't have to go to the doctor's office, as well as just gaming out hospital bed availability in real time. How will this end up reshaping Big Tech and its relationship with Washington?
3: Well, I think, you know, to the extent from an overall public policy standpoint, there's a major effort underway right now to try to flatten the curve Of coronavirus infection. And and certainly, you know, an important way to make that happen, apart from saying that, you know, we shouldn't have gatherings of more than 50 people in one place for the next two months, you know, the way to really make society operate is to be able to use technology to operate on a more distributed basis. Uh, So, you know, certainly from that standpoint, uh, big tech has a a very significant role to play. Um, You know, whether you want to go from looking at, you know, cloud computing companies, uh, to e-commerce, to distributed workforce productivity, names like Zoom, Slack, or distance learning providers such as 2U. Uh, so, you know, clearly we're going into a mode here for, you know, maybe the next two months uh, where, you know, consumers are basically going to be, you know, living at home and staying at home and working at home. And, you know, what we have to think about here is that to the extent that this is a significant crisis, to the extent that people's behavior is being changed as a result of it, you know, here's a real chance for these companies in the technology sector to become even more of an integral part of people's daily lives than they were prior to this.
0: So, David, I know you have a lot of experience uh, with uh, technology stocks. Is it your call um, that, you know, these are still fundamentally, you know, Good businesses going into the crisis, they're going to be fundamentally good businesses coming out of the crisis, and you're going to have some extraordinary entry points, um, or are you just kind of scared about the valuation. You might want to get you know more defensive given this tremendous amount of uncertainty and volatility
4: we have.
3: I mean, look, these are these are certainly going to be core holdings uh, for anybody's uh, portfolio. We think going forward, um, you know, the question that we have to ask ourselves is sort of looking at. Broader market levels. You know, where does it perhaps become you know more balanced in terms of the risk reward ratio? Um, you know, sort of looking at the S and P 500 historically, uh, the S and P 500 kind of bottoms out at 13 times prior peak earnings, 20 times current trough. You know, if we think that 2020 S and P 500 earnings are going to be down 30% this year. You know that kind of puts a floor on the S and P 500 at about the 2,100 level. Now, you know, granted that was down, you know, 18 percent from where we were trading pre-market, but it certainly says, you know, that that's a level where we think that kind of in between here and there, um, you know, there's going to be some real opportunities for investors to come in and pick the right names. Uh, and, and certainly, we think that these names we mentioned earlier are going to be playing an even more important part in people's lives going forward than they were before.
1: I wanted to pick up on exactly that point because certainly one aspect of this whole epidemic pandemic has been the importance of being interconnected via social media, via Slack, via Zoom. And I'm wondering, who are the biggest winners that maybe are not as obvious as the Zooms and the Slacks of the world?
3: Well, I mean, certainly if we're looking at places where it's, you know, uh, safe to keep your data stored, cloud computing continues to be quite strong. I think one of the names you mentioned earlier in terms of distance learning, there's a company, 2 you, a mid-cap company, about $2 billion market cap. They work uh, with, you know, educational, academic institutions to help enable their uh, distance learning capabilities in terms of the ability to put their programs out, um, you know, to students and, and certainly From that standpoint, that's going to be significant going forward. Um, I know that Pearson, uh, the publishing company, had a company called uh, Blackboard that they had acquired, but that on its own, I think, is a relatively small part of the overall enterprise. It may not not be so much of a, a pure play as some of these other names. So, you know, clearly, we're looking at a market here where investors are looking for large liquid names, albeit today, to sell, to raise cash. But- Looking at large liquid names that people can, you know, easily own a part of going forward. You know, looking at some of the names that have been mentioned along this line, uh, even if it were to be Slack or Zoom, uh, I, I think are also, you know, two quite good names. Um, to be looking at here as well.
1: There's also a question about cybersecurity, especially as more of the information moves to the cloud. And this is all the more relevant today when we had learned the U.S. Health and Human Services Department suffered a cyber attack on its computer system Sunday night. It said that this did not affect its response, the timing or the scope of its response to the spreading coronavirus, but still very much front and center is the cybersecurity. What's your sense about how Good that is in terms of the big tech giants, as an increasing amount of business and activity moves online.
3: No, I mean you've raised a very, very good point because you know not only are we operating operating in a real economy environment here, where people's personal hygiene uh, is uh, critical, but also to the extent that life is shifting more to be supported online or virtually. Uh, looking at our technology, our tech hygiene is critical in this regard. And so, yes, cybersecurity is an area where there is an alarming uh, a number of security breaches or hacks. And so from that standpoint, you know, the need to improve cybersecurity is necessary from here. Certainly, as we're looking at an environment right now, people's attention is focused on, you know, what are we going to be doing here to support people's incomes is you know unemployment rates probably spike over 10 percent if not more um you know we also have to be thinking about a public private sector initiative that goes more towards enhancing the cybersecurity, not just of the u.s government uh, but that of the individual citizens
0: David Garrity, thank you so much for joining us. David Garrity, Laidlaw & Company, sharing his thoughts on the market. We always appreciate David's thoughts, particularly on technology. And again, you know, I think a lot of investors are selling tech along with everything else, uh, as David mentioned.
1: I want to take a look at the medical side of coronavirus, in particular, how we track it, how we test for it, and frankly how close we are to actually curing it, or solving it, or ameliorating at least the effects. Luckily, we have Max Neeson, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, covering all things healthcare uh, with us today. Max, I want to start with Anthony Fauci, uh, who is the Director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Disease. Yesterday, he was testifying in front of Congress, and he said he admitted that it was a failing of the U.S. healthcare system that we did not have sufficient testing at the outset. Can you just walk through why we did not have better testing available right away so that we could track and isolate people immediately?
4: So there um you know any number of reasons or, or failures for this. Um, you know, a failure of cooperation between agencies like the CDC and the FDA, a failure to bring in private companies and state labs rapidly enough, a decision at the outset, instead of using a WHO developed test, one that's been deployed all over the, the world, we decided to develop our own, which turned out to have problems. Though the, introducing those problems obviously created difficulties and and slowed the rollout. And beyond that, um, just a, an overall decision by the government for, um, you know, not necessarily the best reasons, to restrict uh, deliberately the number of tests that were deployed and developed and like the number of people that were tested, limiting it only to people with a direct travel history to China, uh, in spite of the fact that there was, you know, already evidence of spread in other parts of the world. And, you know, the, the reality that the earlier, you know, better to over test and under test. And we really didn't even get to that, that mindset um, until just a few weeks ago. So failure of leadership, failure of science, failure um, on, on many, many levels has led to this this point.
0: Max, where are we right now in terms of the number of kits we have in this country, how widely dispersed they are right now, how easy is it for somebody to get a test, and and just kind of where are we today, do you think?
4: Unfortunately, all, all that we really have are, are sort of these ad hoc estimates. Um, I'll point people to former FDA commissioner Scott Gottlieb, who's been, you know, uh, talking to state labs, the CDC, private companies, trying to come up with a reasonable estimate. Um, so we, we really don't have a confirmed number, unfortunately. And um, it, it seems to be the case that you know your ability to get tested really depends on where you are. Are you in a state? That, that took early steps to to de, you know develop its own tests to to stand up at more capacity than it needed any any given moment. Um, we're still not at a point where everyone who needs to be tested can be unfortunately and and probably won't be for a little bit to come.
1: Uh, although uh, Anthony Fauci did say today that he expects the number of tests to increase dramatically over the upcoming weeks, in part because the U.S. government is partnering with private companies, can you talk a little bit about that?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So this is basically you know looking into companies like LabCorp and, and Quest, um, you know these sort of brand name companies that have labs all over the country, and um, just basically making sure that they too are, are part of this effort. That you know if, if a public lab is over. Overwhelmed if there isn't one available, uh, send it to these companies, and, and they're finally beginning to to stand up capacity to to get you know validate these tests and, and begin to run them. That'll be a, a huge help because they're they're more dispersed um, and and potentially you know quite capable of running a lot of tests. You know we're not at the stage where even they are, are going to provide all the capacity we need, but they will certainly help a lot.
0: Let's talk about cost, Max. I know you're out with a, a column today, really interesting. Coronavirus crisis makes a case for Medicare for all. Talk to us about that. Does that actually have some legs?
4: Yeah. So, you know, the it's a uniquely American uh, phenomenon that in addition to people worrying about getting coronavirus, if they're smart, they will also be worried about the cost, of getting coronavirus. Um, you know, the first step is, is obviously testing. There's been an effort from insurers and from individual states and, and the government to make sure that, that 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 people won't be faced with costs. But that's, you know, you actually have to take really aggressive steps to make sure that even testing in a pandemic is not gonna cost people thousands of dollars. Uh, and then you get to the stage of, of whether when people actually have a hospital stay, um, you know, a lot of people that don't use their health insurance that often assume that they're protected from Unexpected bills, but if you end up with an inpatient hospital stay, you're going to hit your deductible. um, You're going to potentially face co-insurance, and that will get you to your plan's out-of-pocket maximum, which in many cases is in the thousands of dollars, and that's a financial strain on many companies. And that's the best-case scenario. There, there are steps the government can take in an emergency to kind of prevent that from happening, to protect people from costs uh, still in the works and and unclear whether they'll be broad enough to help. I'd argue that you might want a system, I mean, this is what I argue my column, where you don't have to take emergency steps to protect people from those costs.
0: Max Neeson, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate your perspective on all things healthcare. Max Neeson is a biotech pharma and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio.
1: Thank you, Max. I mean, honestly, this just just, to me highlights a lot of weak spots. And, you know, there's, there's a question of how much is going to be temporary and how much will this entire episode reshape the way some people think about a variety of different
0: issues this Medicaid for, or Medicare for all I think it will be back on the table certainly for the Democrats as they think about uh, you know kind of how to position uh, the U.S. Uh, against some of these uh, pandemics. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P; l podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney.
1: I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz one. Before the podcast you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.